0: for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say
1: these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset.
0: Dedicated to our active duty men and women.
1: They came not as
0: conquerors. But as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews,
1: highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who have served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them.
0: Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com.
2: Here's Stephan Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show, our brand new episode, this, our season five finale. So glad you're with us on this Sunday afternoon. Staff and Tubbs producer Matt Steinkruger. Next week, we will have our season premiere of season six there is so much to talk about friends from afghanistan and the winter and hunger to sex assault and the law that was signed into law by the president earlier this week regarding our military men and women and of course the situation in ukraine a bit later on in the program we will also pay respects just this past friday was the 36th anniversary of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Glad you were with us, and we couldn't do programs like this without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson and his law firm, bosonlaw.com, that's B-O-E-S-E-N law, bosonlaw.com, their easy phone number, 303-999-9999, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. And and today, as we wrap up our Season 5 Just again, thank you to the Boson team and attorney John Boson for his unwavering support over the years. Let's start with the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, just on Friday, speaking out about the current situation between Russia, Ukraine, NATO and the United States.
3: So let me be clear on where things stand today. First, conflict is not inevitable. There is still time and space for diplomacy. The United States, in lockstep with our allies and partners, has offered Russia a path away from crisis and toward greater security, and the Department of Defense will continue to support those diplomatic efforts. Second, the United States remains committed to helping Ukraine defend itself through security assistance material. And since 2014, we've committed more than $2.7 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. And that includes more security assistance to Ukraine in the past year, $650 million, than any at any previous time. And so in December, President Biden authorized $200 million in assistance, which included additional javelins and other anti-armor weapons, grenade launchers, large quantities of artillery and small arms ammunition and other equipment those deliveries are ongoing indeed another shipment another shipment just arrived today and third the united states will stand shoulder to shoulder with our nato allies and that includes reinforcing security on nato's eastern flank and as you know we place thousands of us troops on Prepare to deploy orders earlier this week. If NATO activates its response forces, these troops will be ready to go. For months now, Russia has been deploying forces to Crimea and along Ukraine's border, including in Belarus. It has progressed at a consistent and steady pace involving tens of thousands of Russian troops. And it is being supported by increased Russian naval activity in the northern Atlantic, and the Mediterranean Sea. While we don't believe that President Putin has made a final decision to use these forces against Ukraine, he clearly now has that capability. And there are multiple options available to him, including uh, the seizure of cities and significant territories, but also coercive acts or provocative political acts like the recognition of breakaway territories. Indeed, we're seeing Russian state media spouting off now about alleged activities in eastern Ukraine. Now, this is straight out of the Russian playbook, and they're not fooling us. We remain focused on Russian dis- disinformation, including the potential creation of pretext for further invasion or strikes on Donbass. And any Russian attack or further incursion into, into Ukraine Uh, would not only ignite conflict, it would also violate the bedrock principles of national sovereignty, territorial integrity, and self-determination. So this is something that we're taking very seriously, both as a strong partner of Ukraine and, and as one of 30 members of NATO who are unified in opposition to Russia's attempts to undermine those core values and threaten peace and security in Europe. As we've made clear, in addition to the significant economic and diplomatic costs that Russia will incur, a move on Ukraine will accomplish the very thing Russia says it does not want, a NATO NATO alliance strengthened and resolved on its western flank. The United States will contribute to NATO's response forces, and we will coordinate with our NATO allies. We will make sure that they have the capabilities that they need to defend themselves. Article 5 is clear on this point. An attack against one NATO member is an attack against us all. And as President Biden has said, the United States holds this this as a sacred obligation.
2: Again, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin from the Pentagon just this past Friday. It has been a week of ups and downs, and, and at least the last few days couple of days of silence the u.s ambassador to moscow hand delivered a letter to his counterparts at the kremlin and well the contents of the letter were not made public i personally agree with that but so far at least as of our record time no russian response let's get the latest on a tumultuous week to say the least in international relations from cbs news
4: With more Russian fighter jets positioned in neighboring Belarus within striking distance of Ukraine, six U.S. fighter jets arrived to the region ahead of an attack that the U.S. estimates could come in the next three weeks. That's what's really causing uh, all the tensions right now is this very, very big buildup of forces, very combat credible forces that he has uh, along that uh, border with Ukraine and, and in Belarus. Today, the U.S. and NATO offered Vladimir Putin a way out. The U.S. ambassador to Moscow delivered a written response to Russia's demand that NATO halt its expansion and never allow former Soviet states, including Ukraine, to join the alliance.
5: There is no change. There will be no change.
4: 8,500 U.S. troops were put on high alert for near-term deployment in case diplomacy fails. Today, NATO's secretary-general said 5,000 allied forces are set to go. We have plans in place that we can activate uh, execute uh, on very short notice no one is quite sure what vladimir putin will do next week he is set to travel to china for the start of the olympic games and the state department says that may impact timing of an attack i think that probably uh uh president xi jinping would not be ecstatic if uh putin chose that moment to invade ukraine uh so that may affect his timing and his thinking It's a really interesting point. And Margaret joins us now. So you have some reporting on whether President Biden would want to personally sanction the Russian president. Well, Nora, the U.S. could sanction Putin, but at this point, the White House has not decided to do so. According to sources I speak to, if you do that, it creates some technical complications. If you sanction someone you have to negotiate with, how do they travel? coordination-wise, it also gets complicated. What may be more effective as a strategy is putting pressure on the oligarchs close to him, their business interests, and their bank accounts so that they, in turn, put pressure on Putin.
2: That from CBS News. We are just getting started on this Sunday, our Season 5 finale. When we come back, this past week was so important for members of the military who have been sexually assaulted. And hopefully, what they did at the White House this past week will ensure that, well, perhaps sexual assaults within our military branches will go down and maybe the perpetrators will know nothing will be tolerated. So we'll have that coming up as it was a very big deal this past week. I'm Stephen Tubbs. We are off and running on the American Veteran Show season five finale. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com.
0: back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stefan Tubbs.
2: So glad you're with us on this Sunday. This, our season five finale. Be sure to join us next week as we have a brand new episode as we kick off season number six here on the American Veteran Show. Sex assaults in the military for generations have existed. And sadly and criminally, so many of them have been overlooked or maybe Certainly victims would say underpunished. This past week at the White House, President Biden signed an executive order that designated sexual harassment as an offense in the United States military's judicial code. This has been welcomed. They have been looking at this for months and months and months with not only the president, but the defense secretary, the Pentagon, uh, the defense department. What you're about to hear is just from a few days ago on a source that we don't quote often, and that is MSNBC, but a very good interview from just a few days ago on what the president signed this past Wednesday.
6: So how big of a fix is this Biden order today? I mean, it fills some gaps that are left by the reforms in the last defense budget. But is that enough? And, and is that the most action that we're going to get on this issue right now? I mean, to your point uh, about Congress, could Congress be doing more? And if so, why aren't they? Um, (laughs) it is absolutely a win. You know, I started 12 years ago in this fight. I volunteered as a sexual assault response coordinator when I was in the Air Force on active duty. I organized when I was in uniform. I organized in the streets. I've testified to Congress. And what I've seen over the many, many years of this fight is The corruption in the military is directly tied to elected officials that do not want to hold this institution accountable. Mm. And that's what it comes down to. It is Congress's job. It is why we elect them, is to conduct oversight over the most powerful institution. And speaking truth to power is difficult. Change in the military is difficult. And so I will say that the president's executive order will have meaningful impacts for people that are in military uniform right now people that I have heard from directly that are on the brink of committing suicide um, because of inaction over many years at places like Fort Hood, which continue to go on, like business as usual. And so why does Congress not act? I mean, the— The incestuous relationship between senior elected leaders who have long, long allowed for their general friends to not be held accountable. Why is it that Vanessa Guillen's chain of command, we still don't know if they were fired, if they don't have their benefits, will they be allowed to go on TV as pundits? Right. It's a revolving door issue. And. While, yes, this is opening um, some progress that we urgently need, it is only the start of the urgent road to eradicate violence and racism and corruption in the military. Yeah. I mean, Pam, this is not a new problem for you. As you said, uh, this is not a new problem for the country. We've been talking about it since tailhook in the 90s through multiple overseas wars, but it does feel like maybe something has changed now. We know that that this administration, the defense secretary said that this issue was going to be a priority. You talked about Vanessa Guillen's story changing the narrative. Uh, What else do you think could be happening here? Is Me Too part of this conversation? Where is the momentum for change coming from now? We are in a rupture moment in this country. The ways that things have been can no longer be. This administration understands that we cannot go back, right? There's Mm -hmm. no going back to broken systems. There's no going back to things that we can't be proud of. There's only going forward. This administration knows that there must be progress made in if we want to say we support the troops. Right. Like I said, um, I saw a significant change when particularly women, queer, trans people, um, you know, the forces that make up the largest amount of our enlisted force. Right. The bulk of our military force said I cannot in good faith encourage other young people to enlist in a military that cannot have basic workplace accountability that allows um, that allows rape and violence and nationalists um, to go unchecked. And so that has been one of the biggest change is this willingness to boycott something that, frankly, we love. Um, You know, I have a complicated relationship with my military service, but it is hard. It is hard. It is a hard position to be in. But I think that we are at a rupture moment where um, many of us are saying that change needs to happen. And also it needs to happen at the top. It needs to happen with generals and top brass that have the most power um, to actually change the institution. Mm -hmm. No more shortcuts. Um, And so that is significant today, is saying that we are going to change the military justice system. It tells us that we can do it. It's just about will. And it's just about whether elected officials are going to want to do it.
2: That from MSNBC. Now, just about six months ago, PBS did a special investigation on sexual assaults and harassment within the military.
6: For years, the U.S. military has faced a serious problem with sexual assault and harassment. Past attempts to address this have failed to reduce the number of incidents. Now, after President Biden and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin created an independent commission to examine possible solutions, both have endorsed its findings. Nick Schifrin talks with the commission's chair in her first interview since she released the report.
7: The numbers are staggering. An estimated 20,000 service members are sexually assaulted every year. But only 7,816 service members report those cases. And in only 350 cases were perpetrators charged with a crime. 64% of those who report sexual assaults have faced retaliation for doing so. The Independent Review Commission, or IRC, made 80 recommendations, including remove military commanders from adjudicating sexual assault cases, better evaluate commanders for the climate they create, and victim advocates should be independent of the chain of command. Lynn Rosenthal chaired this commission and joins me now. Lynn Rosenthal, welcome to the News Hour, you write that the military has failed America's sons and daughters and service members know it. What do you mean?
8: We found that there is this great chasm between what senior leaders say about sexual assault and sexual harassment and what junior leaders, junior enlisted members experience. So senior leaders will say that there's no tolerance for sexual assault and sexual harassment And yet junior enlisted members say that there's quite a lot of tolerance, and particularly for women, we heard that sexual harassment is just part of daily life for many.
7: The uh, main recommendation uh, that we've highlighted and, and others highlighted uh, are, are the independent prosecutors uh, who you describe uh, need to decide whether to prosecute sexual assault, sexual harassment and domestic violence. Why do you think they should decide and not commanders?
8: We found that there is, because of this broken trust, that junior enlisted service members do not trust their leaders to handle these problems, they don't trust that there will be accountability for sexual assault in particular. And that by moving the technical legal decisions about whether or not to uh, charge a suspect with a crime and then whether or not to send that case to trial, that independent prosecutors are better able to make those decisions and that we hope to see a restored trust within the military.
2: That from PBS last year. And again, what happened on Wednesday, the executive order signed by the president, kudos to the bipartisan effort. And may we always, from here on out, realize anywhere, but especially in our our military, because this is the American veteran show, sexual assault and sexual harassment will never be tolerated. When we come back, we take a look at Afghanistan. Seven months later, what's going on there in the winter? And how bad is the hunger problem? We'll have that next. This is the American Veteran Show Season 5 finale, AmericanVeteranShow.com.
6: This historic addition to the UCMJ honors the memory of Army Specialist uh, Vanessa Gann, whose experience with severe sexual harassment was followed by a brutal murder, catalyzing national attention to the scourge of sexual violence in our military and helping advance bipartisan military justice reform in the 2022 uh, NDAA. This executive order also delivers on a key recommendation from the Independent Review Commission to strengthen the military justice response in prosecuting cases of domestic violence and fully implements changes to the UCMJ. The Biden-Harris administration thanks Congress for its bipartisan commitment. We also look forward to continuing to work with Congress to support the safety and dignity of our service members.
0: Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephan
2: Tubbs. Hope you're having a great Sunday, and thank you so much for joining us on the American Veteran Show. It's a a special program for us. Well, every week is, but this is our Season 5 finale. Be sure to join us next week as we kick off with our Season 6 premiere. And I do say... Personally, professionally, sadly, we will have so much to talk about a week from now. And what will this next week bring in Ukraine with NATO and Russia and the United States and 8,500 troops right now on standby? Our men and women of the United States military, if you pray, please pray for diplomacy. We'll switch gears. We'll have more on Ukraine and the situation as we wrap up the program. But it's been more than six months. And what, I wonder, is going on in Afghanistan? Two incredibly powerful reports now. First from the BBC, looking at Afghanistan in the months after the U.S. debacle last August.
9: After 20 years of war, Afghanistan faces a long, harsh winter and a cold and hungry peace. Victorious, the Taliban now guard food queues. <laughs> more than half the country is going hungry. Women, barred from work and education, have lost another fundamental right, the ability to feed their families. Here in Wardak province, we meet Paris. As a second wife, she supports a family of six alone. This wheelbarrow of basics is meant to last now 17 days, but maybe less, there was no rice today.
7: Winter is very difficult. We don't have money to buy food or firewood. We just fill the rooms with smoke to feel warm, but still it's cold.
9: Her granddaughter is always hungry. The baby's mother can't produce milk. Baby formula is beyond the reach of almost everyone here. The Taliban are international pariahs, so the economy is being crushed by sanctions. Only humanitarian aid is allowed. So in Kabul, even the well-to-do are queuing for World Food Programme handouts. These wheelbarrows are full of the very basic salt, rice, peanuts, cooking oil. And for many of the people here,
6: it's the first time they've had food in days.
9: Um, The interesting thing is, though, that the bazaars, the markets in central Kabul are full of produce. But no one here has any money. And this isn't just the case here in Kabul. It's the same situation across Afghanistan. Sabera can't afford the dollar cab fare to take her home. But she has just enough to hire a wheelbarrow.
3: What can we do? There's no money to buy food. All the men are jobless, they don't have a job, and nothing to eat. There's no firewood to warm our homes.
9: This should be the time when Afghanistan stops and catches its breath. Instead, its poorest are sinking deeper into poverty. Ajar Ghul moved here from Nangarhar province. This house is home to four families. He can't afford soap to wash the kids' faces. They burn plastic to keep warm. It still isn't safe for them to return, he says. We would have moved to Pakistan, but Pakistan closed its borders to us. This is a cascading crisis, touching every part of society. Three-and-a-half-year-old Abdul Masawar is doing much better now. You should have seen him weeks ago, his mum says. A million Afghan kids will be severely malnourished this year. Much of Afghanistan's healthcare system is close to collapse. Soraya is a year and a half. Her big bright eyes don't miss a trick. She was severely malnourished Her tummy and her limbs are still swollen.
3: When
1: we came here, her situation was very bad and she needed a blood transfusion. Thank God she's so much better than she was. The doctor has said we should wait here until the swelling goes down. Ten years
9: ago, I lived next door to this hospital. It was a time of a great surge of men, material and billions of dollars into Afghanistan. Western diplomats would say, They weren't trying to build perfection here. They weren't trying to create Switzerland. Who knows what they were trying to create, but it wasn't this. It wasn't a country where half the people, more than half the people are going hungry and babies like Saraya are near starvation. Should Afghanistan now be left to struggle alone? For two decades, Afghans of all ages were trapped in a tempest of violence between Western forces and the Taliban. Those battles are now over, but the Afghan people's suffering endures. For them, there's no respite.
2: Quentin Somerville, BBC News, Kabul. That from the BBC. And one of the best international war correspondents going is NBC's Richard Engel. He also, earlier this week, took a look at Afghanistan six-plus months later.
10: When U.S. and NATO troops pulled out of this country and the Taliban took over, Afghanistan's economy collapsed, and now there is mass starvation. It's all about the economy. There is food here, but people can't afford to buy it. And it's forcing some families to make desperate choices. A nurse said a clinic in Herat run by Doctors Without Borders measures Farzana's arm. If the band goes red, she's severely malnourished. Farzana is nearly at the end of the scale weighing six and a half pounds at eight months old. Farzana's mother used to give her formula, but now can't afford it after her husband lost his job. A baby dies of starvation nearly every day at this clinic. Occupancy is up 70% compared to last year. Some are two to a bed. Ali Umar's mother was herself malnourished, So the baby was born too weak to suckle.
0: My husband is a house painter, but he sold his tools so we could feed the baby. Things have gotten worse since the Taliban came. What little we had went to zero.
10: The babies here are given a fortified blend of formula. About a third were already vulnerable, like Imran, who has a neurological disorder. The three-year-old can't walk or talk. Now he's starving, too. Jawad, barely weighs three pounds. Many of the poorest in Herat live on the outskirts of the city. Here, the elders say work has disappeared since the Taliban took over, and prices have gone up. Then, Murad Khan, a day worker, made a shocking admission.
9: Look, look, behind you.
10: You see her? Come here, come here, he says. I swear to God, is she old enough to marry? No, but I sold
9: her. His daughter, Benazir,
10: is eight years old. She was sold to another family to marry one of their sons when she reaches puberty. Do you know what we're talking about? Benazir doesn't answer, but seems to want to disappear. The buyers haven't paid for Benazir yet. The agreed price, her dowry, is $2,000. As soon as they pay it, they'll come to collect her. Benazir's family survive by begging. They burn trash to bake bread because they can't afford wood. Benazir and her best friend, Saliha, go to fetch water. The local mosque is kind enough to let them fill their pails. Saliha has been sold, too. She's seven. The two girls walk back home. Benazir in just torn socks, even as she crosses a rocky path. Salia's father says he knows she's too young, but that he had a terrible choice to make. Take the dowry now, or watch all the family starve. I'm forced to do this. I'm keeping five alive. One has to be sacrificed. Benazir and Salia sit alone by their homes. The other girls, who, like many here, use henna to dye their hair red, keep a little distance. Perhaps wary, they too will soon become hunger brides.
2: That from NBC News, and thank you to the BBC as well. We will wrap up the program coming up next on our Season 5 finale. When we do, we'll go back to the Ukraine situation and hear from Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and we will also pay respects and look back with chilling audio. The 36th anniversary this past Friday of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Stay with us for that. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com.
0: This is the American Veteran Show, online at americanveteranshow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs.
2: Welcome back to our final segment, the final segment of the final show of season 5. Join us next week as mentioned for our season 6 premiere. Hope you've enjoyed the program so far. We're always available to reach out, give us suggestions. You can hit me at the station for my email address. If you've got a veteran to profile or a military charity, we aim to please and we certainly Thank you for your support and you listening over the years. Next week, a tremendous season premiere. We're going to go back to Ukraine and the situation. You'll hear from the Secretary of State in a moment. But at the end of this segment, we will wrap up with a look back 36 years later at the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Some audio you may not have heard in perhaps a while, or maybe it's been two or three decades. We will take you inside NASA coming up, and we wrap up the program. It was the night of January 28, 1986, President Reagan delivering comforting words to the nation. But first, Secretary of State Antony Blinken on the situation in Ukraine from just a few days ago.
5: Uh, Last week in Geneva, Russian Foreign Minister uh, Lavrov and I met to discuss the crisis instigated by Russia's military buildup on Ukraine's borders and steps to de-escalate tensions and pursue diplomacy. Uh, Russia had previously outlined its concerns and proposals in writing, and last week I told Foreign Minister Lavrov that the United States would do the same. Today, Ambassador Sullivan delivered our written response in Moscow. All told, it sets out a serious diplomatic path forward should Russia choose it. The document we've delivered includes concerns of the United States and our allies and partners about Russia's actions that undermine security, a principled and pragmatic evaluation of the concerns that Russia has raised, and our own proposals for areas where we may be able to find common ground. We make clear that there are core principles that we are committed to uphold and defend, including Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, and the right of states to choose their own security arrangements and alliances. We put these ideas forward because they have the potential if negotiated in good faith, to enhance our security and that of our allies and partners, while also addressing Russia's stated concerns through reciprocal commitments. Our response to Russia reflects what I said in Kyiv, Berlin, and Geneva last week. We're open to dialogue, we prefer diplomacy, and we're prepared to move forward where there is the possibility of communication and cooperation if Russia de-escalates its aggression toward Ukraine stops the inflammatory rhetoric, and approaches discussions about the future of security in Europe in a spirit of reciprocity. Our responses were fully coordinated with Ukraine and our European allies and partners, with whom we've been consulting continuously for weeks. We sought their input and incorporated it into the final version delivered to Moscow. Additionally, NATO developed and will deliver to Moscow its own paper with ideas and concerns about collective security in Europe. And that paper fully reinforces ours, and vice versa. There's no daylight among the United States and our allies and partners on these matters. We shared our response paper with Congress, and I'll be briefing congressional leaders on this later today and consulting with them on our approach. I expect to speak to Foreign Minister Lavrov in the coming days after Moscow has had a chance to read the paper and is ready to discuss next steps. There should be no doubt about our seriousness of purpose when it comes to diplomacy, and we're acting with equal focus and force to bolster Ukraine's defenses and prepare a swift, united response to further Russian aggression. Three deliveries of U.S. defensive military assistance arrive in Kyiv this week, carrying additional Javelin missiles and other anti-armor systems, 283 tons of ammunition and non-lethal equipment essential to Ukraine's frontline defenders, More deliveries are expected in the days to come. we provided more defensive security assistance to Ukraine in the past year than in any previous year. Last week, I authorized U.S. allies, including Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, to provide U.S.-origin military equipment from their inventories for use by Ukraine. Also last week, we notified Congress of our intent to deliver to Ukraine the Mi-17 helicopters currently held in Defense Department inventories, five of them. Additionally, the Secretary of Defense announced on Monday that 8,500 U.S. service members currently stationed in Europe and the United States have been placed in heightened readiness – heightened readiness to deploy – to ensure that we're able to support the NATO response force swiftly if it's activated by the North Atlantic Council to harden the Allies' eastern flank. Other NATO Allies have also announced steps that they're prepared to take, and we expect more in the coming days. We've taken this step out of prudence. Uh we hope those forces don't have to be activated for deployment. But if they are, we will be ready.
2: Secretary of State Antony Blinken from earlier this week and as of our record time there was no indication that the Russian leaders were going to react publicly to the letter that was hand delivered earlier this week by the US ambassador to Moscow. And as we wrap up, it was 36 years ago last Friday.
1: Lift buck confirmed. Lift off. Here's the Challenger. Roll program. Roger. Roll, Challenger. Good roll, flight. Rog, good roll. Three at 65. 65, Fido. TDL confirms throttle. Thank you. Challenger, go with throttle up. Challenger, go with throttle up. out trajectory. GO AHEAD. FLIGHT GC, WE'VE HAD uh, NEGATIVE CONDUCT, LOST DOWNLINK. OK, ALL OPERATORS, WATCH YOUR DATA CAREFULLY. FLIGHT FIDO, UNTIL WE GET STUFF BACK, HE'S ON HIS CUE CARD FOR ABORT MODES. FLIGHT GC, NEGATIVE DOWNLINK. COPY. FLIGHT FIDO, GO AHEAD. RSO REPORTS VEHICLE EXPLODED. Copy. Fido, can we get any reports from recovery forces? Stand by.
2: That from inside NASA. I remember exactly where I was. How about you? And then it was later that evening. Supposedly, the president had been planning, and of course he was, for the State of the Union address. And that was postponed. President Ronald Reagan, from the Oval Office, the night of January 28th, 1986
1: i'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the state of the union but the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans today is a day for mourning and remembering nancy and i are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle challenger we know we share this pain with all of the people of our country this is truly a national loss 19 years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes, Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista McAuliffe. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear, as you do, the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss, and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave, and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers.
2: The great communicator. That wraps up our Season 5 finale. Thank you so much, not only for listening today, but any time you do, to the American Veteran Show. Next week, our Season 6 premiere. And you can also follow us on our social media sites, at AmVetShow, on both Facebook and Twitter. For producer Matt Steinkruger, I'm Stephen Tubbs. Have a terrific week ahead. Join us for our season premiere next week, and remember our troops.
0: The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com.
1: Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show.
10: That's cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP.